Who are we? And why do we exist? Those are two of the most basic of all human questions. Over the next four weeks, we are going to answer those questions as we roll out a new brand for First Baptist Pelham. That new brand includes a logo, a logo that's on the front of your bulletin. It also, in the next week or so, includes uh, some gifts that we want to give to you. In addition to that, we are going to launch a new church website. Before months end, we'll give you the opportunity to purchase some clothing that bears that new logo. This morning, uh, we launch a new purpose statement. That purpose statement is not only found on the front of your bulletin, it's also found on the screen behind me. First Baptist Church Pelham is a Christ-centered faith family that exists to make disciples for global impact by enjoying God through worship and prayer, equipping disciples through teaching and serving, and by engaging the world through missions and evangelism. Embedded in that 40-word statement, we find our five-word mission. We are here to make disciples for global impact. We are here to make disciples for global impact. We exist to make disciples for global impact. Over the next four weeks, we're going to have a four-week study of the book of Acts. We're going to walk through that book. We're also going to unfold this purpose statement. So this morning, I invite you to take your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1, Verses 1 to 8. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Acts chapter 1, let's begin at verse 1. We'll read through verse 8. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the word of the Lord and may God add his richest blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. The book of Acts is a pivotal book in the New Testament. It is the hinge that holds together the Gospels and the letters of the Apostle Paul. In the book of Acts, you and I discover a historical framework for the advancement of God through his church. We see that God moves in mighty ways through his people and the Gospel is taken to real people in real places with real problems. Not only is the book of Acts merely a historical textbook, but even greater, it is a book that is richly theological. 
Because through the book of Acts, you and I bump into a God who is so sovereign that he cannot be stopped. In fact, this God is an unstoppable force. His gospel goes forth, knocking down every barrier that's made by mankind. And our gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ goes forth and it cannot be stopped, stilled, stifled, or silenced. So we are part of something that's far greater than ourselves. We are part of something that is an unstoppable force, not only in the ancient world, but in the world in which we live. In verse 3, we are told that after Jesus was raised from the dead, he gave his disciples many convincing proofs that he was alive. That word that's rendered convincing proof can also be translated evidence. Jesus gave hard, cold facts. Jesus gave evidence that he was alive. He wants the disciples both then and now to understand that our faith is not rooted in fiction. It is rooted in facts because the tomb really is empty. Jesus understood that he had a tall task. He had to convince some disciples that he really had been raised from the dead. Now, this is abnormal. This is not normal for human behavior. It's not routine for dead people to come back to life again. Jesus knew the tall tasks that he had. He had to convince a bunch of ragtag redneck fishermen that he really was raised from the dead. And how did he do it? Repeatedly. He revealed himself to them. Repeatedly, he showed up. Repeatedly, he revealed his resurrected body. Repeatedly, he, um, he, he went and ate with them and revealed that really he was alive. Now, this is hard to believe because those early disciples, they had watched him die. They had heard the hammer as it hit those rusty spikes. They had seen the blood as it spilled and splattered outside the body of Jesus. They had observed how the Roman soldiers pierced his side. They watched the agony that was etched on his dying face. They were there when Jesus took his last breath. They watched how the Roman soldiers lifted him high and laid him low. They saw how they took down his body, placed him into a borrowed tomb, rolled a massive stone in front of it. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. You do realize that everything about Christianity rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection. It's not just the belief in the resurrection, it's the reality of the resurrection. And Jesus understood that in order for disciples in those days to do what he needed them to do, they could not be fuzzy in their recollection of the resurrection. They didn't just have to think it could be true. They had to know that it was true. They had to be convinced that it was true because the tall task that Jesus had for them to do, they had to be dead level convinced that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Jesus cannot afford to have any followers who are fuzzy about the resurrection. That's true in the first century. It's also true in the 21st century. Because of the task that Jesus wants you to do, because of the job that he has for us to do, he cannot afford for us to be fickle or faint-hearted when it comes to the reality of the resurrection. So Jesus gives many convincing proofs. He gives evidence that he's alive. Over a period of 40 days, he appears to them on numerous occasions. On one, occasions we are, on one occasion, we are told that Jesus gave this command, do not leave Jerusalem. But stay here until you receive the gift 
from my father. It's a gift that I have told you about. John the Baptist, he baptized with water. But in a few days, you're going to be drenched with the Holy Spirit. The disciples ask him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It was John R.W. Stott who said, by them asking that question, they're revealing the narrowness of their understanding of the mission. They still think that Jesus has come just to reinstitute the Davidic kingdom. They think that Jesus has come as a political uh, individual, one who's going to set up the nation of Israel in prominence once again. They're asking for Jesus to establish the territory that David and Solomon enjoyed, and they want him to do it now. And Jesus responds, it's not for you to know the dates and times that's been set by the Father's authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says, don't get hung up on territory. Don't get hung up on the improvement of a particular nation. Don't get all enamored with dates and times. You be preoccupied with the messianic mandate. You will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Acts 1.8 really serves as the table of contents for the book of Acts. You see what God is doing all throughout the globe Right there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. In chapters 1 to 7, the gospel goes forth in Jerusalem. In, verse, in chapters 8 to 12, the gospel goes forth to Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 to 28, we read about how the gospel goes forth to the ends of the earth. The very last picture in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, we find the apostle Paul. He is in Rome. He's under house arrest, and he's proclaiming the gospel. What's so interesting about that is that it was believed in the first century that Rome was the end of the world, for the sun never sets on the Roman Empire. And what's the last portrait we have? We find the man of God proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of God by the spirit of God. And the apostle Paul is there under house arrest. He's in Rome and he's in chains and he is proclaiming the gospel to whoever comes to visit him. And when you get to the end of Acts, you ask yourself the question, but what happens to the apostle Paul? What happens to him? Does he ever get out of, under house arrest? What happens? Does he ever have his day in court? And the answer is the book is not about Paul. The book is about Jesus. It's about his gospel that goes forth and it cannot be thwarted and it cannot be stopped because we're part of something that's an unstoppable force for the Lord Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty and his gospel goes forth to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Acts 1-8 is really like a table of contents. It just helps us to dissect it helps us to understand what the whole book of acts is all about in acts 1 8 we are told that the church's power is the spirit of god you'll receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you the church's power is not in programs or events or even in ministries per se the church's power is not in personalities. It's not in committees. The church's power is in the Spirit of God. 
The book of Acts is a spirit-saturated book. Every page you find the Spirit of God. In fact, on numerous occasions, it speaks of the filling of the Spirit. On at least 14 occasions in the 28 chapters, you read something about the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is all over the place. I'll give you just a couple of examples. In Acts chapter 2, it's the Spirit that comes in power on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 4, it's the Spirit that fills the Apostle Peter and he preaches to the Sanhedrin. In Acts chapter 7, it's that deacon named Stephen. And he bears testimony to the goodness of God even until his last dying breath. In Acts chapter 8, it is the man named Philip who goes down the God-forsaken Gaza road. And there he bumps into an Ethiopian eunuch and he shares the gospel with him. What's interesting is that every time the scripture makes mention of being filled with the Spirit, the end result of that or what comes next is that the man of God proclaims the word of God. Every time he's filled with the Spirit, he bears testimony to who Jesus is and what he's done. That's what Peter does on the day of Pentecost. He bears testimony. He gives witness. Some 3,000 people are saved. That's what Peter does after healing the crippled man. He goes and he stands before the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And what does he do? He does not cower down. He does not back away. But he's filled with the Spirit. And the result is he bears testimony to the goodness of Jesus. That's exactly what Stephen does. Even as they are stoning him with rocks, he is still to declaring the goodness of the resurrected Christ even till his last dying breath. And Philip, as he goes down that Gaza road, he bumps into somebody who is totally different than him and he bears testimony to the goodness of Christ. My point is this, you are never more spirit-filled than when you're talking about Jesus. You are never more spirit-filled than when you are talking about Jesus. You know, we talk about people who are just filled with the Spirit, Spirit's all over them. You know the number one evidence that somebody is spirit-filled out of their lips and out of their lifestyle bears witness to Jesus. You are never more spirit-filled than when you are talking about Jesus. Jesus tells the church, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. That Greek word for witness is the Greek word martis, from which we get the English derivative martyr. The idea is that a witness is somebody that proclaims the testimony of Jesus until you have no more breath. It's somebody that bears witness to Christ until your last dying moments. A witness is somebody that shares the good news of Christ with every bit of capacity that's in their lungs and in their lives. They leverage everything possible to make disciples for global impact. They leverage everything in their capacity, their time, their talents, their resources, their possessions in life, their position in life, their influence, their platform, whatever a person has, they leverage that for the good and glory of God because we are witnesses. That means that we bear testimony to the goodness and the transforming power of Christ until our very last breath is taken from us. 
whether it's taken at the hands of persecutors or whether it's taken by very natural ways and natural means, regardless, we are bearing testimony to the goodness of Christ and the transforming power of our resurrected Lord. We are witnesses. It was Stephen Olford who said, um, witnessing is not a ministry. Witnessing is an anointed lifestyle. Witnessing is what we do. It's, it's how we live. He said, a believer who does not witness is like a light that refuses to shine. It's like a river that refuses to flow. It's like a flower that will not bloom. It's like a bird that will not sing. You and I have been saved to witness. You and I have been saved to speak about how good Jesus is and all that he's done in our life. Shame on us and woe to us if we do not always bear witness to who Jesus is and the power of his working transformation in our life. You will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. That statement would have stunned the early disciples. They would have been stunned by this. They heard Jesus say, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's cool. That's good. I mean, those are our peeps. Those are the people that look like us, walk like us, talk like us. They live like us. They have our same values. That's great. The people in Jerusalem, yes. Those are the Jewish nation. We love them. Yes. Jesus, we're with you. We'll go and make disciples of those people. And Judea, well, that sounds great too. I mean, that kind of sounds like Old Testament Davidic kingdom kind of territory. Yes, we like that, Jesus. We're bringing back the good old days. We're going to set up your kingdom in Judea. That sounds swell. That really sounds good. But Jesus, I think you, must, you said something incorrectly. You said that we're going to go to Samaria. That must have been a mistake, Jesus, because you know that Jews and Samaritans hate each other. It's embedded in them from their upbringing. Jews hate Samaritans. Samaritans hate and despise Jews. Jesus, you say we're going to go to Samaria? Those are the people that uh, are the opposite of us. Those are people that we don't like. Those are people that have it out for us. And furthermore, uh, Jesus, you said we're going to the end of the earth? Now, you did mean just the Jews in the end of the earth, didn't you? I mean, because if you really mean the ethnos, if you really mean the nations, if you really mean that we're going to go to the nations, that means we're going to bump into some Gentiles. And remember, this is originally given to Jewish believers, and they think to themselves, Jesus, you must be mistaken. We like to go to Jerusalem. We really like Judea. But Samaria and the end of the world, we're going to bump into people that just don't look like us, walk like us, talk like us, or act like us. Now, Jesus, do you really want us to take the gospel to them? This would have been a stunning statement. And Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. His kingdom is far greater than one nation. His kingdom includes all believers who come and trust in him, both Jew and Gentile. It's Nate Adams who says the Messiah's mandate is not sequential, but rather simultaneous mission fields. You and I are called to the same messianic mandate. Jesus says to us what he said to his disciples some 2,000 years ago. He tells us to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world. 
And Nate Adams is on to something. This list is not sequential. It doesn't mean that you go and you proclaim the gospel only to your Jerusalem, and then once that is saturated, then you can move on to your Judea. And then once that is exhausted, then you can move on to Samaria. You know those people that don't look like you, act like you, walk like you, or talk like you. And then once you've done that to a satisfactory level, then you can go to the end of the world. It is not sequential. It is simultaneous. Jesus wants his church to simultaneously be on all four missionary fronts. He wants us at the same time to have an influence in our Jerusalem, in our Judea, in our Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So what that looks like for us is that we intentionally want to reach our Jerusalem. That's Pelham in the greater Birmingham area. So we go uptown, downtown, and across town. We intentionally take the gospel across the street right where we live. It also includes Judea. That's the great state of Alabama. You and I could say it's, it's the southeastern portion of the United States. Woo, we love that, don't we? But he also tells us to go to Samaria. That could be other parts of the United States of America. Let's just be honest, where people are vastly different than us. We may even call them our Samaritans. You could give a little demographic of what that may look like in your world or my world. I understand that. Or maybe it's somebody uh, uh, in North America. That, that would be our Samaria. And then the end of the world. That means any place on the globe. You go any place on the globe, you're going to bump into people that really don't share your same likes or values or perspective on life. And we are called to take seriously this messianic mandate we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we will be witnesses in our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world. So what that looks like is that we desire to make disciples for global impact and we take the gospel to Pelham and Helena and Alabaster. We take the gospel um, to Huntsville and to Mobile. We take the gospel to Charlotte and to Houston. We take the gospel to Denham Springs and San Francisco and New York. We take the gospel to Peru and Uganda and Israel and Siberia and China. We take the gospel anywhere because this is not a church where you come to sit and to soak. This is a church where you go and show the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we take seriously the messianic mandate. We are all about making disciples for global impact. This is not about us. This is about us being obedient to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. A fable is told portraying Jesus after his ascension. He walks through the pearly gates and Gabriel, the angel, comes up to him and asks the question, Jesus, does everybody on earth know what you've done for them and how much you love them? And the response supposedly goes, Jesus says, no, not everybody, just a few people in Galilee. And Gabriel said, well, How's the whole world going to know that you came and died on the cross for their sins? And Jesus replied, well, I've told Peter, James, and John, they know, and some of my other friends, and I've told them to tell others, and those others will in turn tell others, and then eventually the whole world will know. Well, Gabriel was a little skeptical. He said, 
but Jesus. What if Peter, James, and John get tired of telling the story? What if the others stop telling the story? What if way down in the 21st century, what if your church just will not tell the story? Do you have another plan? Is there some other way for the world to know? And Jesus replied, I have no other plan. If my people won't tell the story, then who will? Church, we take seriously the messianic mandate. We are part of something that's far greater than ourselves. We are on mission with the Lord. Let's be very clear on what we're doing. We are striving to make disciples in this place. And disciples, not just to make ourselves feel better, but we are striving to make disciples for a global impact. Whether your globe is across the street or literally across the world, you are intentionally trying to live your life with the, with the questions of, what am I learning? Where am I going with the gospel? And who am I trying to reach? Because if, if we don't tell the story, who will? If we don't bear witness, who will? If the church of our Lord Jesus Christ is not crystal clear on its mandate, then who's going to hold the banner? And who's going to carry the cause? I tell the staff all the time, we work as if it all depends on us, knowing full well that it all depends on God. I did tell you, he is the sovereign Savior, and he cannot be stopped. Even, even if you're muted, he cannot be stopped. Because he is an unstoppable force, and nothing can stop, stifle, still, or silence the gospel. And the amazing thing is, he invites us to tell the story. If you are a baptized believer in the Lord, I want you to know that Jesus, who's the host of the table this morning, invites you to come and to join him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And Lord Jesus, thank you for reminding us of the messianic mandate that you have given. And Lord, we thank you that on this day we get to participate, observe. We get to partake of your bread and your cup. So Lord, I know that you've invited all baptized believers to come and gather around this table. You are the host. You're the maitre d'. You're the one who serves. And Lord Jesus, we pray that in these few moments that you will just have a divine appointment with every one of your believers in this place at this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.